Hi everyone, I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the road to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Today we're doing a special episode because we got a bunch of questions that came in, so we're going to do a Q&A, which I love doing. One of my goals in my business is to break down reproductive health information and make sure that it's being given in digestible pieces so that patients can understand what's going on. By the way, I'm not a doctor, so I don't always know, but I always have good access to the information. So I love this one that came in. How do I respond to all the people getting pregnant in my life when I'm deep, deep in treatment? And when you are going through infertility treatment, whether it's true or not, it feels like every single person around you is getting pregnant. Kind of like when you're in a lane of traffic and every other lane is moving and then you switch to that lane and then you're stuck again. I don't mean to compare traffic to pregnancy, but it just feels like it's happening for everybody else and not for you. And at the end of the day, it is always going to feel this way. So I'm not saying it's helpless, but it is very normal to feel like everyone else is getting what they want and you're being left behind. And one of the best ways to deal with that is boundaries. Boundaries is my answer for a lot of different questions. I think boundaries are crucial to a healthy mental state and healthy relationships, but If being near people who might be announcing a pregnancy or have just announced a pregnancy is triggering for you in any way, shape, or form, full permission not to visit with them. And that means, of course, we all know the, oh, you can say no to a baby shower. But it might mean, you know, you and your best friend got pregnant around the same time. Maybe you've now had a loss. She's still pregnant. And you just can't bear to go through the milestones with her. I strongly feel that honesty is the best policy. So if you're open to telling her why you just can't see her, and look, she might be like, come on, I love you, but it's me. And it doesn't matter because you need to set your boundary even if you know she loves you. And look, you're allowed to be sad that everyone else is getting pregnant and you're not. It doesn't mean you're not happy for them. It just means you feel left behind, and that's a not a great feeling. Nobody wants to feel left behind. Another great question that came in was, have you navigated miscarriage with IVF? I assume they mean me personally, but we can talk about both me personally and the expectation that when you do IVF, you're basically guaranteed a baby, which is what we all think. It's certainly what I thought when I went into it. I thought, oh, I'm finally doing IVF. I'm going to finally get what I want. And I still didn't, and it never occurred to me that I wouldn't. And I've said it on here before, I believe the statistic is somewhere between 64 and 67% of first embryo transfers fail, meaning your first transfer of an IVF-tested embryo fails. That is a very high number. That is a very high number. We don't expect it. And it often feels in IVF like you're on the wrong side of every statistic. So yes, I have navigated miscarriage with IVF in my, oh gosh, second retrieval, third transfer. We transferred two day five untested embryos and one of them stuck. Now, they were untested and this is a whole rabbit hole I could go down as well. But we had done one retrieval where we got very good results. And so my doctor thought, look, we might have a loss, 
but maybe you want to save the $6,000 of genetic testing and just try because you might not have that many issues. And so we did, and we got a positive pregnancy test for the first time ever. It had already been about four years of trying, our third round of IVF. And I mean, we were ecstatic, and the thought that it wasn't going to progress did not even cross my mind. And one of the beauties of IVF is that you go in for monitoring a lot. So you're very excited because you get to see your doctor a lot, which when you're pregnant, you want because you just want to know everything is healthy with the baby and with your body. And it was at that like six and a half, seven week scan that things were not going according to plan. And it was kind of not hopeless at the moment. The doctor was like, listen, we don't know if it's hopeless. You're going to come back in two days and we're going to see. And those two days are so hard because you want to stay hopeful. You want to stay positive because you think that if you don't stay positive, that's going to somehow affect what happens and what the outcome is with the embryo. Spoiler, it has nothing to do with it. Okay, so you might think this is going to work. This is going to work and it doesn't. You did not make that happen. And you might think this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. And then it does. And you didn't make that happen either. And I did all the things and I prayed and I cried and I was a hot mess for those two days. And then we went back in and they said it's not going to be a viable pregnancy. And it was obviously devastating and very shocking. And we had several choices on what we could do in terms of clearing out the pregnancy and what I chose to do in that moment was take the Pristone and I'm very grateful it was available to me. That is sometimes referred to as the abortion drug. I didn't want to have a DNC because I was not extremely far along. Now there's a lot of mixed bag reaction to Mifepristone and Misoprostol, the two drugs that are used for terminating a pregnancy sort of at home or with your doctor without doing a DNC. I had a very not pleasant experience, but a relatively easy experience with it. I had what felt like a very painful period, and then it was pretty much done. Unfortunately, one of the torturous pieces of doing it that way is that you're kind of waiting and checking and waiting and checking for when it's finished, when the pregnancy is officially done, because you can't move on until then. And there is a special kind of emotional torture in waiting to become unpregnant. So emotionally speaking, that part is extremely hard, whereas a DNC can be more physically challenging and and, uh, more painful. It's a surgical procedure. There can be scar tissue issues. But from an emotional standpoint, once you have your DNC, you're basically done. And so you can sort of emotionally start to heal and move on. I did go on to have one more loss on my fifth transfer I believe and that was with a tested embryo and it was ectopic so that was a second IVF one and then I did go on to have two more failed transfers and then number eight was my lucky one so I don't think we often think about or talk about the rate of failure that can happen but it's a pretty high rate and you're still giving yourself the best chance that you can I got several questions asking me if I had listened to the Retrievals podcast. Woof! Yes, I have. It is extremely hard to listen to if you've been through any kind of retrieval. I mean, probably other people have a visceral 
reaction to it as well. But for me, episodes one and I think either three or four out of five or six were very hard to listen to with the details of what was going wrong in the retrievals. But I cannot recommend this podcast highly enough. I am in the process of trying to get Susan Burton on. She was the host of the retrievals and I have so many questions for her. If anyone I know here has a connection to This American Life or The New York Times or Serial, please reach out to Susan Burton and let her know we want her on our podcast. But for those of you who don't know, I highly recommend listening to it because it's such a small nuanced story that is actually so big and impactful. The bottom line, without giving anything away, is that several women over the course of many years were being treated for fertility and were having egg retrieval, some for procreation, some for egg freezing, and they were not given pain meds. They thought they were being given pain meds, but actually the pain meds were something else. I hope I didn't just spoil too much. It's all in the first episode. But it talks a lot about like what the doctors believed when the women were saying they were in pain and how much pain we're supposed to tolerate as women before somebody believes us, and of course what was going on behind the scenes, and it is so freaking good. The storytelling is great. It's a very heartbreaking story, but also riveting and extremely important storytelling. So that's The Retrievals. It's out now. I think it's only five episodes. I was highly annoyed because I had to watch it or listen to it in real time. I was not able to binge it because I was listening to it each week as it came out and I was like dying to know what was going to happen next. So anybody who's being referred to it for the first time now, you're in luck because you get to binge all five episodes and it's probably going to make you pretty angry and it should. Okay, I got one here. My AMH level is really low. Can I still do IVF? Yeah, of course. So AMH is anti-malarian hormone, and it indicates the number of follicles that you have that could turn into eggs. So that is a super important piece of it that could turn into eggs. Just because you have an extremely high AMH That might mean you have a lot of follicles, a high number of follicles. And then when they retrieve them, it turns out they weren't mature enough. They didn't have an egg inside. So you really can't use AMH as the only indicator for your fertility. Just like anything, there's quality and quantity. So your AMH might indicate great quantity. But if your quality is really low, your AMH is irrelevant. Plus, the idea behind IVF is pulling out the best of the best. So even if your AMH is low... If you get two super high quality, great looking eggs that turn into embryos, it doesn't really matter what your AMH is. So I try to tell people, and I know it's alarming, nobody wants to be told they have a low AMH or a low quantity, right? We want to be working with the best. It's just like men who have a low sperm count take it very personally. Ego is ruptured and it's okay. As long as we get the best sperm, the ones that work, it's all we need. And I don't mean to be cavalier about it. It's just that people freak out with their AMH levels and it really is one indicator. If you are 25 and trying with a low AMH versus 35 and trying, like they're very different. So don't jump to conclusions the minute you hear you have a low AMH. Then a question or actually more of a comment came in about a particular doctor at a particular clinic that I'm not going to name either one of them to protect the innocent or guilty depending on how you look at it. But it was basically a statement of being extremely dissatisfied with a fertility doctor that has a huge social media presence and following and everybody seems to love. And this person feels kind of like a loser was the word that she used for not liking or having a good experience with this doctor. And I just want to validate you, person who sent in this question. This is not about you. This happens so often and my heart is broken every time that I see it, where someone will wait 
for months and months on a waiting list to get with a particular doctor because that doctor has a million Instagram followers or has been endorsed by a particular celebrity. And then they go and they're so disappointed because it's not the same persona that's treating them on the bedside or they have an idea of how they want the cycle to go and that doctor doesn't do that cycle, that kind of cycle or whatever the case may be. So just keep in mind there are so many great ways to find a doctor. On my website, we have a list of 12 questions or 15 questions to ask when you're going in. And what you have to remember is that the doctor experience and the clinic experience might be very different. So you might put up with a lot of crap for your doctor because you love them so much and you are willing to, but you have a horrible clinic experience or there's not a great way to communicate with your doctor or you always wait an hour in the waiting room. Like these are things that you don't necessarily know until you've started working with somebody, but this list of questions that I have tries to nail some of these ahead of time so you know what to expect. Similarly, you might love the clinic. They might have the best embryo lab in the country and when you go in, you're seen like within five minutes, but your doctor delivers news in a way that makes it feel like he doesn't give a shit, which might not be true, but it's just his bedside manner and like, do you want to put up with that? So just remember you're in charge of this experience and it can be so frustrating. You're like, I'm in charge. I'm spending thousands and thousands of dollars to put them in charge and They're giving me a choice. I don't know what choice to make. That's what I'm paying them for. In fact, I had a client this week who said her doctor gave her a choice to go on antibiotics or not. And I'm like, aren't the point of being with an expert so that the expert can tell you whether you should take the medicine? It was very frustrating. But these are the kinds of things we're dealing with. So you always have to feel empowered. And if you're not feeling empowered at your clinic or with your doctor, I definitely think that's a time to switch. So I hope that kind of answered the question. And one more point I want to make about that is that sometimes you have the best doctor with the best intentions and the best clinic and insurance companies are dictating how something has to happen or a way that something has to happen and that's the reason you might not be getting the results that you want. And so in that case, you have to decide what you want more, the money that you're saving from insurance, which you might want, or a much better and more smooth experience, which you might want. And navigating that can be super tricky. And then I got this question about acupuncture and I'm going to I'm going to probably have an acupuncturist or two or five on cuz I do deeply believe in them. Does acupuncture really work for fertility? So, yes and no, and also yes. There are studies that show specifically post transfer, embryo transfer that having acupuncture can increase success rates. I don't know if that means it increases live birth rates. But here's the thing about acupuncture. Number 1, It's dedicated time that you're devoting to yourself each week to meditate, check out, relax, hopefully get some kind of self-care, treatment, etc. So at the very least, you're putting it into your schedule and you know you're going to have that time. Number two, undoubtedly, it increases blood flow. One of the main purposes of acupuncture is to increase blood flow. So all the needles do is hit points in your meridians that get the blood flow moving around your body. For pregnancy, you need really good blood flow. You need blood flow to the embryo. You need blood flow to your uterus. You need blood flow eventually to your placenta. And so if blood flow is happening from acupuncture, why not try it? It's worth it. And some acupuncturists do the herbs. I'm less enthusiastic about that, but that's just me. Some people swear by them, and I think that's great if it works for you by all means. You know, I had I had several acupuncturists along the way. And some had more of a spa-like experience and some it was very clinical. And so I would go based on what I needed. 
There are a ton of acupuncturists in almost every area. Not every, every area, but so many areas. And so I just suggest you do the research, ask around, feel free to reach out to me for sourcing, and find someone that like gives you that almost spa-like experience because we have to find the joy everywhere we can along this journey. Don't you think so? And I just want to say before transfer, can it help egg quality? Maybe if you're doing it consistently for three months, but what you can definitely do is nourish your ovaries. And so when you have more nourished ovaries, you are producing more mature eggs and it makes it worth it in that way. Okay, that wraps up the questions for this week that came in. I really love answering them. So as soon as you have any, feel free to reach out to me with them. You can email them to hi at thefertilitychick.com or you can message me on Instagram at abbyfeeder at thefertilitychick at encirclefertility. And I'll save up and do a few in an episode because I really like doing it this way. I cannot thank you enough for joining me. If you like this episode or find any of these tips helpful, please share the episode. Share, 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 follow, 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 and tag, tag, tag. We always appreciate it. And I'll see you next week where we have an excellent guest.